Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Black Pumas drummer Stephen Bidwell. Stephen has been based in Austin, Texas for most of his career, and prior to the Black Pumas blowing up a few years ago, he was involved in everything Austin had to offer, from western swing to steakhouse jazz to his original 10-piece Afrobeat project, Hard Proof. He also teaches and records in his home studio in Austin. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. So if you aren't hip to the Black Pumas, you've probably been living under a rock. They've been all over the place for a couple years now, and their audience widened substantially after they were featured as part of last year's inauguration program, which Stephen talks about. So that and much more. Hope you dig Stephen Bidwell. So how long have you been in Austin? Um, I think it's 16 years. So, Wow, okay. A funny transition in there. I was a Katrina transplant. I so see, okay. I like evacuated here and then went somewhere for a semester. I was trying to finish grad school at the time. But NYU took me in and then... I promised a girl I would come back to Austin. <laughs> and, um, I love New Orleans, but it's turned out to be a much better fit for me, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm stoked to go back to New Orleans and eat and everything, but I think the food probably would have killed me there if I'd stayed. <laughs> I think like, I think it will get you. a whole lot of fried seafood on bread. Will yes, it will. the death of me. It will get you. Um, every time, every time I'm there, uh, for the first few days, it's it's just you know bedlam food wise, and then uh, after about two or three days, I'm like, okay, I need vegetables now because you know, yeah. <laughs> this is out of hand. Yeah, but um, I mean, I still somehow managed to finish that degree on time, and then kind of got started here, and um. Oh, I've done a million and one things since I've been here. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, are, are you from New Orleans? Is that is that where you came from? Um, I'm from the East Coast. I was born in D.C. I was I born in D.C. 
Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I, what, do you know which hospital? I don't. Um, I only lived there for like the first four and a half years of my life. Um, okay. But my family lived on like right on Capitol Hill, like on Fifth Street. Um, okay, that's where my brother is now. Oh, cool. Um, we grew up in the suburbs, though, like out in Virginia, right. Fairfax County. Right. Okay. Um, you know, it was still at the time it was only you could drive into town in twenty minutes, or there was a quick bus and a train to get. I was explaining to my son that my dad took Metro every day for like thirty-five years. Wow. But it's probably it probably doesn't feel as close in now. Right. But, uh, right. My home, my hometown was resting, and they have a their own metro train now. So it's uh, I don't know that whole DC metroplex area. Interesting place to grow up, I guess. Yeah. So, like, did you did you spend your entire upbringing there? Yeah. Till uh, till I went to college, I was there. Didn't really move back much after that. And you mentioned like you you finished your your grad degree at. NYU um was this was this a music degree like were you getting were you in music school all the way through or was this something different yeah um the grad degree was a jazz studies degree so yeah I did the same thing I went uh UNO uh had I think it's still a pretty sweet program I've been sadly out of touch with most of those folks but I just wanted to study with Johnny Vidakovich yeah and he was there and uh, I wasn't I like, man, I, I have a confusing backstory. So let me, let me do this in a linear thing and then I can jump around and there'll be a quiz later. But okay. <laughs> sure. So I was born in DC and then I grew up in Fairfax County, Virginia, in a town called Reston. I did undergrad at WVU in West Virginia, which is kind of close to Pittsburgh. Uh huh. I moved to Pittsburgh for three years after undergrad. Still scratching my head about that, although I love that <laughs> town very much. And I realized I needed to I needed to leave. It was like I just I, it, like I could have stayed there and just taught and played bits and probably bought a house within a year. But I was like, I don't. I mean, I love it here, but you know, uh, I hate winter. Right. So I'm not gonna do. I don't want to do that anymore. Yeah. So like, I auditioned for a few schools. Uh, one in Philly and then like New England Conservatory. And uh, I think I got like waitlisted at New England and offered a tiny bit of money in Philly. And then it was like, I'm just going to hold off on this. And then UNO offered me a full ride like 10 days before the semester started. So I was like, hmm. okay, guess I'm renting a van. Yeah. So then I ended up there and then Katrina happened and then New York for a little while, then Austin. So wow, that's a long that's many, that's too many places. Um, <laughs> yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't know where I want to go from here. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess, you know, Vidakovich, I mean, was, uh, was he like someone that was really on your radar in terms of someone you wanted to study with, or was that just kind of a last minute thing that's like, oh yeah, there's this school that's given me a scholarship. Um, I mean, he had been on my radar, so I looked and I was like, well, he teaches at Loyola, but they don't have much of a grad program, or they didn't back then. And uh, UNO seemed to have a cool vibe like him. And uh, I had like Mazikowski, Steve Mazikowski has been made an astral project mm -hmm. for, uh, for ensemble and harmony and stuff. But uh, 
mostly I just wanted to study him with him and I'd always wanted to live in New Orleans. And, um, I mean, it wasn't just jazz studies. It was like, it was a whole, it was a ton of ear training. It was like learning how to be a musician in New Orleans. Mm, like, yeah. I don't know if you've lived up north, but it like, you could think about it in terms of playing in wedding bands. Like if you're in New England, everything's probably going to be charted out if you get called called for a, a working wedding band. Yeah. But in New Orleans, you got to be able to do a lot of things by ear. Right. So it was sort of a lot of ear training and a lot of really picking things up on the fly, which I'd say that got, got me really ready for Austin eventually. But Right, right. Um, and I mean, I... I got to play all different kinds of music while I was there, but it was, as far as grad school, it was a good experience. I mean, the other, if it tells you anything, I was looking at New England because Bob Moses was there and I was always fascinated by him. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so that's like, like Johnny is kind of like a Southern fried Bob Moses. That's almost. interesting. I can, I like can totally see that. Yeah. Like cats who are not going to make you, work through a book or right. something like they're, they're just going to point you in a direction and tell you some records to check out. And maybe, I mean, like uh, most people go to Johnny and they want to talk street beats and stuff. And I had, I had clearly checked out his book and video at the time. And uh, if you haven't ever looked at those, like the one, there's a Herlin Riley one and mm -hmm. the Johnny one, it's all like transcriptions of the video, but, um, I mean, that's a great place to start if you want to know New Orleans drumming. And I you know, was sort of familiar with Stanton, too. And, I mean, I I had read Johnny's name from just interviews with Brian Blade. And I was like, well, if that guy pointed him in the right direction. I don't know. I, obviously, those are how I found out about him. But I really checked out his stuff. And uh, he, he was just... We did not spend a ton of time in books. Yeah. And when I did mention books, I remember getting a lot of a lot of doors slammed on me <laughs> the first few. Like just having weird declarations and then a door slam and then he'd open it like sometimes I hear a door slam and I'll hear him say monkey puzzle, which is the name of an Ellis Marsalis record he told me about at our first record. I'm like just to have this remember of him like slamming the door and then opening it and going monkey puzzle and then shutting the door again. <laughs> anyway, it was a real trip. And I mean, uh, and then like some of the best lessons were like just talking about, like I got him real talking about Paul motion. He was real into Paul motion and his yeah, brush playing. Yeah. So it was like, he's kind of got that vibe down. Like, Everybody wants to hear him play the, the Professor Longhair beats and stuff, but like if you hear him in a piano trio or just a chordless trio, just playing brushes, like there is a world of music and knowledge going on there. Yeah, yeah. Really That's, dope to listen to. That seems like a really unique um, college experience because, um, you know, coming, I, like I also went to uh, grad school for jazz studies and um, coming out of there, uh, I was really married to reading to like, yeah. you know, just going through charts and because I, you know, I think in, in most schools and most environments, like you're told that's what you have to do. That's the coin of the realm is just reading your ass off. Um, yeah. and I found that, um, in more and more situations outside of college and after college, um, I was, I was too married to reading. I, I didn't have, um, 
you know, like I had a good ear. I had good, you know, sort of improvisational in the moment um, instincts. But uh, it was it was like my attitude <laughs> that kind of went yeah. south if I wasn't given a chart to follow and just, you know, left to my own devices. Um, so it sounds yeah. like Johnny, like, really set you up to to rely on your ear and your instincts um, and not somebody's chart. Yeah, definitely. And I, I have um, <clears throat> I haven't trademarked the phrase yet, but I have like sometimes so I, I co-lead this Afrobeat band with 10 people in it. And sometimes I'm like, like, I don't want to see the chart because if I see the chart, I'll get this lab band head about it. Mm, yeah. Right. Yep. I see these melodies. I think I have to catch everything. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. It's like, I don't, I need to think about the dance floor first and then <clears throat> maybe catch something. But like, if I, if I see all the notes, I'm going to start like getting into that mind about it. Like thinking I have to catch every figure. I totally know what you mean. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. And especially if, you know, the, the, the spectrum of, um, drum charts, like in a lab band kind of run the gamut. Cause sometimes they tell you nothing and sometimes they yeah. tell you everything. Um, but as a, you know, as a young drummer, like when you get a chart that tells you everything, you want to play it all. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's, man, that's a, it's a great point about just like getting into that lab band <laughs> mindset and how it's not usually yeah, it's, the best place to be. It's an easy place to go if you've, if you've spent any time in that world, yeah. you know, yeah. know when to look at a chart and when not to look at a chart. I mean, right, sometimes right. you just, sometimes just looking at the lyrics is way handier mm -hmm. and, uh, for a minute here in Austin, I was getting a bunch of country and Western swing calls hmm. and uh, finally started working with people using the Nashville number system. Yeah. And that was like, <clears throat> that was kind of a revelation. Like, I'm like, you know, I can't hear like B flat seven, E flat, whatever, if I see it on a page, but <clears throat> I can hear one, six, two, four, five, three. I can hear the values of chords you know like right so if i see that in the lyrics i'll know what the heck is going on it's like and little figures and stuff like that right and if i have time i can make those kinds of charts myself and it's just <clears throat> it's way easier to get through i don't know three hours in lukenbach when uh when it's with a western swing band you've never heard before How did Austin uh, become the thing for you? Like, it sounded like New Orleans was was kind of a musically formative experience for you. Um, what brought you to Austin? Um, that, there was a girl that sort of demanded I move here. And that, <laughs> that did not last long, but I mean, I knew like one or two people when I got here. And um, like, I got got put to work sort of quickly doing what I would call the steakhouse circuit. Mm -hmm. So lots of brushes backing up singers. Yep. There's a million steakhouses in Texas and <laughs> a lot of them have pianos and sometimes you could fit a bass drum under that piano. So 
a lot of the, a lot of that kind of work and a, a bit of jazz, but like, you know, here I am with my masters in jazz in a, a town that is not, not nearly as much of a jazz town as, you know, New Orleans or New York or even Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's work if, if you really want to be that guy playing nothing but jazz in town, that's fine, but you're going to, going to be playing a lot of steakhouses. So, I mean, I branched out in weird ways. Um, like I joined a, this would seem nuts for someone with a music degree to join a instrumental rock band. But I mean, I was about to like pack up a U-Haul and move back, but I took this one random Craigslist audition for an instrumental rock band that had like one song. And I was like, this feels really good. Hmm. And, uh, <coughs> I'm going to do that. I'm going to try that. And I'm also going to just bail on this relationship. Like I was totally going <laughs> to just disappear like the Baltimore Colts in the middle of the night. And you know. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> um, uh, anyway, I mean, I joined that band. That's the Calm Blue Sea. I, it technically still exists, but one dude lives in Seattle. And uh, I don't know. Once and we're talking about writing a record online, but it's, it's like cinematic instrumental post rock, sort of like like your explosions in the sky or that kind of stuff. Yeah, so yeah. It lends itself really well to TV and film work. Like, like we scored a whole film at some point uh, live at the uh, Alamo Draft House here. Oh, cool. And, uh, we got like a little bit of NPR attention, but it's uh, it's nothing super huge. I mean, it's one of those genres that has. Bit, like pretty big fan bases abroad right it's like the one song i wrote in the catalog i will totally hear on npr in another part of the country as like bumper music <laughs> uh, it's uh. just really random but still really good cathartic fun and some of my best friends in the world right um so and band. so that one that one band with the one song uh was was sort of like the the lifeline that kept you in austin yeah and i mean it, eventually we did like three records right so. right well that might be um, uh that might be the only story i've ever heard about a craigslist audition like actually going somewhere <laughs> Yeah, I had a good, what was that? That was like 07. I had a good year on Craigslist because, <laughs> um, so I mean, I moved out on that girl. I moved in with one of the dudes in the band, like at the house we practiced in. And then in under two months managed to get evicted because of a misplaced rent payment or something. Yeah. And uh, like the next place to live I found was off Craigslist and that, Craigslist roommate is now my wife of 10 years. <laughs> so man. 2000, 2007, good, good year for Craigslist. Yeah. I mean, you, you owe a lot to Craigslist apparently. <laughs> I, I totally, totally do. I'd, I'd like to shake his hand someday. <laughs> so at what point, uh, do, uh, black Pumas come into the picture? Um, cause it, it seems like that band has been around for a while, right? Only three years. Okay. I started, uh, I mean, I knew Adrian from other stuff. He, in 2017, he was putting these instrumentals together. And then he asked around and found a singer through a friend who I, I had also, another producer guy that I had also done records with, uh, Brian Ray. Um, 
but he found this singer, Eric Burton, and I think like Eric sang lyrics to something, one of the songs like over the phone to him. And he was like, oh, this, this guy's kind of serious. Hmm. Um, but I mean, they had the better part of a record done by 2018. Like he called me or texted me in 2018 and I just, he's one of a few people in town who I'll just say yes to without even listening. Yeah. So I just, he said, I got this, this residency at Sea Boys. Sea Boys is a bar owned by the guy who owns the Continental Club um, in South Austin. Uh, and uh, he's like, I got this two month residency. It'll be fun. I was like, that sounds like fun. I hadn't really listened. But then I heard it and I was like, oh, this is really dope. And then I heard the guy's voice and I was like, oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. This, wow. This guy's a performer. And then um, <clears throat> at some point, he's like, oh, we're going to work up a couple of Eric's songs. And uh, we learned colors at a rehearsal. And I was like, oh, this dude's got anthems. Hmm. Yeah. Crap. <laughs> we got all. You gotta figure out how to quit my job now. <laughs> um, and it was, and I, I that little resonancy in in short order, like all these music industry cliches started happening. Mm-hmm. So like, like week one, all our friends show up, but like week two, there's a line, and by the end of the two months, they're turning people away, and like, uh, we had like you know, pretty good showcases at South by which, uh, I mean, Adrian had been here a good 10 years longer than me. Like he went to college and he's from Texas and stuff. So like through his connections, like, I mean, we got a showcase, we played the mayor's party. We did all these big shows. And then like by the end of South by, like we have real management. And I think there was already a, like we were already technically on a label, maybe even before I showed up. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like coal mine out of Ohio wanted to start this other label, and we were going to be the flagship. But then, like, uh, slightly bigger labels suddenly get interested in us. And um, and this so, is I mean, is this before your record is even done? Like at this point, you've done a two month residency at a spot in mm-hmm. Austin. Yeah, I think they might have. Ru- they maybe rushed out a single. Mm-hmm. for that south by okay but uh and i don't think the record technically came out till 2019 because uh ato uh was that it's like the dave matthews late started label uh-huh. i guess yeah um they decided they wanted it and uh which turned out to be a really good fit so eventually they partnered with a uh, coal mine or whatever i think karma chief was supposed to be the other imprint so if you find certain pressings of the record it says like karma chief and or ato it's um there are a million pressings of that record already Mm -hmm. it's got to be the most confusing thing for discogs the whole (laughs) discogs crew right but yeah i it got pretty nuts pretty fast um yeah, so talk about like, that. Like you, you mentioned, like I got to figure out a way to quit my job now. <clears throat> um, you know, um, when shit takes off that fast, uh, like what you know, what was your life uh, six months before that, and then how did you just sort of transition into into the Pumas, like making room enough for the Pumas in your life to be the main thing? 
Um, oh man, that's complex. <laughs> I mean, I, I somewhere around uh, the late aughts, I just started like you know, like I fell into this data center job, which was totally mindless and it's just so little actual. I don't. I hope none of them ever listen to this, but like. <laughs> I had a lot of time, un- unsupervised time to do things like book independent projects. And I was like, I'm going to, you know, do the day job thing for a while and uh, just to finance things and finance like random odd projects. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to do that and do what I want for a while. And instead of like, you know, slogging it out in steakhouses and on wedding gigs. Right. Although, I mean, I certainly did wedding bands and stuff all along, but uh, so I had that job and I kept it forever. Despite, I don't think I overtly tried to get fired, but I, I did so many things one should be fired for. But I did. Th- I proved myself invaluable enough that they just kept me around, and I kept, I kept surviving all these like contract changes and stuff. But um, then uh, somewhere, I mean. I kept it and I, I did a lot of flying back and forth for about the first year and a half of Puma's stuff. Mm. So like, I mean, they, they would have like four days in a row and then two days off and I would literally fly back after the show, go to the job, show my face and then fly out and meet him somewhere, you know, Wow! like on my, on my own dime from, I'm probably still paying for all those flights, <laughs> but, um, I was like, I kind of need to hold on to this. Like, and then it just be, there was some period where like I was going to have weeks out and I told, I even tried to keep the dang job, but uh, they were very old fashioned and they didn't want to hear about remote work or anything. <laughs> they just, like you need to be on site 40 hours a week and blah, blah, blah. So, oh, fuck. And really, I don't because I know what the job is, but right. anyway, so I was actually like the last one to even one of the backup singers, like who I thought would maybe even just be like, no guys, I got to keep my job. Like she quit before me. And then I worked it out with my wife at the time. We like our son was going to a good preschool and it seemed like great. And then, uh, so that was like late 2019 in the fall of 2019 or so. Wow. So like so, you, you had that, you had that day job up until, like barely two years ago. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, so you mentioned like, uh, you know, you, uh, for the first year and a half, um, you were thinking like, I I should hang on to this day job. And I think a lot of people listening can relate to, you know, even if something's going well, even if there's something you're excited about, that seems like it's going to kick ass. Uh, it can be hard to like trust it enough to, let yeah. go of your if you got a day day job or a teaching gig or or even another you know other projects you're playing in. So like yeah. what what corner did the Black Pumas turn that that made you confident to like walk away from that other stuff? Um, I mean the record came out and got like very solid reviews and the label was doing all the right things with it and. Uh, like like I said, they got a pretty great management team mm-hmm. early on, and I mean, I, I we would probably be nowhere if not for them. Like, uh, I was I sent them a very 
hopefully sweet text last week after our little stubs run was over. I'm like, thank you guys for, you know, holding this all together. Like, mm-hmm. Even through the pandemic, when like management, management companies and booking agents are probably letting staff go, like they were finding every possible opportunity and like hiring more people. Mm-hmm. So like they're, I think everybody kind of hit a stride at once. So like, all like, the guy had just started this management company, but Adrian knew him from a previous band because I think he had managed them. Like he used to work for C3, the founder of a, oh, it's Ten Adams Management. Brian Madison, good guy. Mm-hmm. He's got a million hilarious industry stories. And when you say they were doing all the right things with the record, and and as far as the management is, is concerned, like what what were those right things? Um. Like, we had a good little support run just to kind of get out there and get the name out. Like we were out with St. Paul and the Broken Bones doing a bunch of theaters. I'm friends with Kevin so, Leon, um, their their drummer, and he mentioned you guys. Uh, I love that guy. Yeah, he's, me too. He's the sweetest dude. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, getting out there and kind of... Uh, we bowled over those crowds, I can say that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I mean, you got to really crush it but you get a 30 minute spot, but you got to really crush it. And then like the same thing, I think the first, maybe had some little Europe van runs, but we also went out with the heavy over there. So that sort of got the word out, but like France and Germany, they just love soul music in general. So it, it got really well received over there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It was just really obvious that people were going to dig it. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's... It's everything to actually enjoy and support the product you're out there with, Mm -hmm. I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Like, when you feel really good about your band and you want to tell everybody about your band and what you're doing, like, it's better than being like, I'm going to play this little gig tonight with these guys. It's, It's whatever. You know, it's not like that. It's like... I actually am totally up for telling anybody who wants to listen all about the bands. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned that because, like, you know, there's there's sort of, I think with, with all the gigs that we all do, there's, like, there's an internal dialogue about, um, well, this could be a thing. This could be lucrative. This looks like it could be popular. Um, and you sort of, like, uh, you know, prioritize different things or different people based on these criteria. Um, but none of that has anything to do with like what you just said. Like when you're telling other people about it, when you're like, I'm part of this thing and it's badass and I'm excited about it. Um, like when it becomes an external dialogue about something you're excited about rather than an internal dialogue about, you know, something that could just work <laughs> or like yeah. something that can be money that you can be a part of. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't remember where I heard this from, but um, this is probably flaky self-help, self-help kind of nonsense. But, like, there's, like, you got to be conscious of what the dream is and what the gig is. Mm. Like, if you, if you keep, you know, chasing gigs, you're just going to keep chasing gigs. But sometimes, like, whatever the dream is, like, if it's playing really dope music in front of lots of people... Sometimes that lines up and that becomes the gig, you know? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, 
you got to be conscious of both things all the time, I guess. Yeah, and that that dovetails sort of perfectly with uh, it's a better better way of putting what I said earlier about um, you know taking gigs or prioritizing gigs, um, you know, not not really looking beyond that gig, right? Yeah. Um, like there's a gig in front of me. It's with these people. I'll make this much money. There might be more, but like it's it's kind of taking a gig for the gig's sake instead of keeping an eye or at least half an eye on um and i don't know do you think it's a longer game do you think that that like keeping an eye out for that dream type situation like um it's it seems to me like a a more patient uh long play yeah i mean if if you keep chasing the dream i guess like gigs just kind of show up along the way Mm mm-hmm Sometimes they're like, sometimes they're a bit soul zapping, but you pay your rent and sometimes they're really cool and you do them for a long time, you know? Right. Um, where am I going with this? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's, it's weird. It, it doesn't happen very often when, uh, the dream and the gig are one and the same. Right. But um, somehow all of that came together here and like everybody involved is really good people. And um, just the whole team, like we have production staff now, we have a kick-ass front of house guy and monitor guy and everything. Mm-hmm. Maybe in a year I'll have a drum tech and I really don't have to do anything. No, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't actually want that, but who knows? With all my favorite clothes Yes, yes All my favorite clothes I My sisters and my brothers See them like no This record sounds amazing, um, and I'm I'm interested in uh, just how you and uh, and the rest of the team there kind of devised these drum sounds and these grooves. Um, I, I'm I'm particularly in this headspace right now because I uh, play in a band, an Atlanta band called uh, Ruby Vale and the Sulfonics. Um, and we're getting, we're kind of in the early stages of, of putting a new record together. I have never recorded with this band. Um, their last record predated me. Um, so, you know, we're getting into some of these songs and I'm putting some drum parts together and dialing some tones in and whatever. Um, and I'm finding that, uh, if I'm not careful, I make my drum parts too cute by half. And, uh, I'm, I'm too quick to, uh, sort of dismiss, you know, uh, an obviously good choice because it's obvious. Um, so I'm wondering if you ran into any of that with these songs, these grooves, um, how you went about, uh, just the, the, the drum world of this record. Um, okay. I'm on half of it. Uh, 
If you hear a, an absolutely flawless groove on it, it's probably one of the J.J. Johnson tracks. <laughs> I don't know if you know him. I do. He's from a, he's in Tedeschi Trucks, and he used to play with John Mayer, but yeah. he's an Austin guy. Also, John Spies is on at least two, maybe three. Uh, he's in Grupo Phantasma and Brown out here, so Adrian's other bands. Mm-hmm. And then I was on Colors, so I'll take that, but I, I know like the... The tracks I'm on, those were still really new to me at the time. So those are second, if not third, takes. Wow. So when I listen back, um, just performance-wise, I'm like, well, that sounded like a a, a blowing date kind of choice. Like, <laughs> um, but I've, I mean, I've obviously gone and refined them on the road, and they sound totally weird to me listening back now but um i mean it was it was uh adrian has his own studio he's moved it out of his house but this was at his house Mm -hmm. so just uh not a huge room uh there's a higher ceiling in the drum area he has like a it's like a 60s rogers um and he generally like three maybe four mics so mm-hmm. like you know a good older kick mic probably like a like a unidyne sm56 on the snare and then uh i can't remember the model number of the sony but everybody in austin has one of these older sony mics um he, he's gotten a whole lot of different microphones since then um but just real minimal Definitely an old, supposed to sound like old soul and hip hop loops, basically. I mean, so I probably approached it more like a soul drummer on the record, but uh, more and more I try to approach it like a beat maker, hip hop producer kind of mind. Like, Like, I'm not here to be drummer guy at all. I'm here to... Like I, there's all these vocals going on. I need to stay out of their way. And mm-hmm. if there's a guitar line, I need to stay out of their way. So like, and I, I knew just from Adrian's interviews and things over the years, like he's not, he does not like flashy drumming or a lot of fills. So yeah, like, yeah. Okay, don't play one unless it absolutely fits. So like, I'll even now I'll like if if we're doing something, I'll like send him separate cymbal crashes later just in case he doesn't want them mm, you know like mm-hmm. i won't even set up crash cymbals maybe not even set up a ride cymbal like just focus on the bare minimum i'm <clears throat> thinking like i mean because i don't know how much i assume you have to listen to some hip-hop like you just there aren't fills there aren't tons of cymbal crashes like you're just yeah it's just just the beats and that's like the information you need to be responsible for yeah yeah i like that phrase i'm not i'm not here to be drummer guy i should i should probably like put that on my wall in here he's, (laughs) he's given me so minimal direction like he did send like one email that i i don't know if i had done something on the first run or something where I was perhaps overplaying. I don't know, but it, like my takeaway from this email was like, uh, no hard rock, no gospel chops. Just think, think like you know DJ Premier or the RZA or somebody. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
And there's such a discipline in that. Like it, it it's really, it's, it's really hard to do um, when you actually try to sit down and do it because so much of our instinct and so much of our muscle memory is tied up in fills and crashes and, and, you know, everything but the beat. Um, yeah. What about the, uh, so like tone wise, I, I love, I love all of the tones on this record because they're, they're interesting without being gimmicky. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I feel like I'm hearing a lot of sort of gimmicky or overcooked, uh, drum tones. Um, and, and these are neither. Um, and another thing that I'm, I, is really on my radar is, uh, you know, how, how much you can manipulate your drum sound, um, and, and how close to the ultimate drum sound that you want, you can, you can get just through tuning, mic placement, all that shit, like before you EQ, before you use any plugins, um, so what was, what was that process like making this record? Was it, was it heavily, uh, processed, uh, in post or was a lot of effort put in, uh, you know, going in? Um, I mean, everything I did on the first record, all the original tracks were just, it was very much like a blowing date or like a Motown session or something like, you know, show up at 11, set up the drums, play, play the song four times. Cause it was all to tape. So that's oh. it's like, we really couldn't fit more than four takes on a reel. So that's, I don't know if that was, if he just likes to work fast or if it was necessitated by that. So it was like, you know, get the information, pick it up now. And I, I mean, in some cases, maybe we had been playing the songs a little live, but mm-hmm. like, Colors seems really early. I don't know if that was the first song I played on the record. or I know I played October 33. That was the last one we tracked. And it was like we had learned it like the night before, maybe, or something. <laughs> like it just, it, it all happened so bloody quick and in such an old school organic fashion. Um I use a lot of like similar muffling, like I'll do a bandana with a Roots EQ over it to hold it in place, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Uh, I love the Roots EQ stuffs. Um, I did have one odd snare drum that made most of my tracks on the record. It's not really worth looking at over crappy internet, internet video, but, um, Okay, so it's a pork pie. It's seven by fourteen. It's uh, sixteen plies. Fifteen of them are maple, but there's a brass one. There's wow! A ply of brass in the middle. Holy that's, shit! It's really random. Uh huh. Um, and I, I got it. There's a a long tangent here. I used to occasionally review gear for Modern Drummer, because um, I went to undergrad with mike dawson a long ass time ago oh cool and, uh, yeah he brought me i i think i'm done with writing for them but i did write for them here and there for a long time so that was um one of my later reviews i just uh because i remember trying out i i, I reviewed those akutin snares the original ones the uh-huh. ones that were uh like it's a metal inside with the hardware but it has these uh uh the actual edges are wood, so right. I got got real into this idea of a brass metal snare drum, and then I'm looking around on eBay and I see these these pork pies exist, but they're um 
I doubt you're going to find one. I don't think Dedimore is going to make them. Because uh, this show was actually, the show was made by a British company. It was uh, a partnership. Anyway, I'm going on and on about one silly snare drum that you probably can't find. But if you do find one, it's it's got a magic honk. Uh, there was also a, a hickory brass one just like that. Hickory, not super common, but kind of a dope snare drum would if you ever encounter it. Um, but, um, well, this is cool. Cause like what I'm, what I'm hearing about, you know, both your groove choices and your tone choices, you know, it, it sounds like the, the recording process was pretty quick and you just had to kind of throw and go, um, yeah. with, you know, with the instincts that you, you brought into the building. Um, and it's, it's just a good reminder for me that, that, uh, you know, the, the simplest answer is often the correct one. Your first instinct is often a good one. Um, yeah. and just, you know, by the judging by, uh, the results you got on this record, you know, if, if you'd have told me that, uh, you know, painstaking hours and days and weeks were put into, <laughs> uh, you know, all the choices there, I would have believed you, but you know, the opposite is no. the case. And it sounds, it sounds amazing. And there's, there's no drum edits on the record, I don't think. Oh, that's great. <clears throat> I mean, it would be hard to do on tape, right? Yeah, I mean, it gets obviously mixed in. Uh, probably, he's a Logic guy, so it probably gets thrown into Logic after the fact. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but, uh, I mean, every I mean, he has a lot of really cool outboard stuff that everything goes through. Mm -hmm. Like, <clears throat> a lot of my home... Like early in COVID, he hit me up to do some uh, library music, just like loop replacement. And it's like, okay, do you want me to mix these here and send them to you? It's like, no, just send it all naked and uh, I'll put it through my magic boxes down here. And uh, <clears throat> I mean, he, he'll he probably buy one major and one minor piece of gear every month or something. So hmm. he's always <clears throat> updating and he's got even more room for it now. It is a his new studio. Yeah. So he's a, uh, he's just like slowly been building that whole operation for years and years. Yeah. I mean, that's actually the main way I met him is, uh, he produced a few singles for hard proof, my Afrobeat band. So, um, got it. Actually produced and then introduced us to like a Canadian label that put one out like a 45. So, and that's like playing wise, that's the opposite. Like, I mean, I know you're supposed to play simply in traditional Afrobeat music, but I play a lot of fills in that band. And that's a <laughs> it gets a little all the all the bad Billy Cobham ideas come out. <laughs> but uh, that's great. I don't, and I mean, like recording with him. My biggest lesson has been like you know trying to be able to play something on take one that you're going to be able to live with. Mm. Like in case that's the take for everybody else, like just living with it and being happy with it and not beating yourself up. If you know, you don't switch textures at the right spot, like you had thought about in the rehearsal pass or whatever, like, right. Um, that's just, just like learning to work with him and hoping I'm getting it right. You know? Yeah. Well, that's also a, a good reminder because, like, you know, all of us are um, recording at home by ourselves more and more. 
Um, yeah. And it's just a huge safety net. Like you have as much time as, as you want to devote to it. Nobody's on the other side of the glass. Nobody else is in the room. Um, yeah. And you can do 17 takes on something if you want to. Um, but, you know, the, the, the virtue, you know, like we're told uh, that, uh, you know, time is money in the studio and you got to be able to nail it the first take and somebody's going to be pissed if you don't. Um, and I guess, you know, there are environments in which that's true, but what, what they don't talk about is like, you know, what if, what if the first take is, is the good one for everybody? Like the reason you should want to get it right or get it good, at least on the first take is cause that might be the one for everybody else. Um, yeah. and, and just catching, you know, catching that, that spontaneous magic of everybody just sort of bringing it on the first take, um, is, uh, you know, makes, makes for better records. Um, so it's, it's good to kind of keep that in mind when we're here alone in our rooms. Um, you know, uh, even though you have the option to do 16 more takes, like see if you can just capture a little magic on the first one. Yeah. Um, and I've been doing more of that and it's like, I totally have done 17 of certain things um <laughs> yeah even like okay with hard proof, hard proof is a 10 person band and uh we had a unique recording thing we went uh do you know jim eno from spoon i don't, I don't know if you um i don't know if you know spoon they're like on merge or no they're on matador now but they're like one of austin's big indie rock ex- exports and jim you know, the drummer has an amazing studio and uh, he had us in like for a project and he said, we're just going to track live to tape. I'm going to mix it live. And um, it went really well. And he had like college students that he had from a a college he had partnered with hanging out watching. So it's like a band of 10 people live. He's mixing live. And um, eventually we decided like this this came out really well let's do three more tracks and put it out so we came back again and um same thing and it never hit a computer like um wow the lacquers were were cut straight from tape so um i don't think we ever got to like 12 takes but you know of the six tracks that made it maybe the best was like a third take but it's like when you're dealing with the guy mixing too, it's like, yeah. Although Jim was, Jim was totally crushing this. So we didn't have to take it back for him, but I'm sure we had to take it back for me. uh, (laughs) I mean, it wasn't, it's like a, it's built in in his garage somewhere in West Austin. And, uh, so like I'm in a vocal booth with drums, nice dead drums. And, uh, the horns are upstairs. There's three horns. We got one percussionist in the hallway and then somehow everybody else is baffled off or there's amps inside, you know, lockup. Mm-hmm. Like he's got little places you can put an amp that are soundproof. He's actually got, um, he has a mic in a sewer pipe under the street in front of his house. Seriously? For, uh, yeah, he can, he can capture the reverb from this inside the sewer pipe out by his house. Um, oh my God. I don't know if he... I don't know if he had that when we did that but um and then we were like the it was like the test pressing on uh his manager's new record press in germany's and it's like still one of the better sounding pieces of vinyl i've heard and even on that like 
we were all really happy with all the takes, but it's like, you know, the first two notes of these of this track kind of speed up, but we're gonna have to live with it. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's it. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to do this again. I don't want to do this the sixteenth time. <laughs> right. But really unique way to make a record that I, if you can, you should try sometimes. Well, that's another good point. Like if you if you sort of stick with something, uh, you know, a, a lot of times like you like you were describing, you don't have a choice and you have to live with something. Um, but you know, living with something sometimes is a choice. And I think, you know, so many of us, myself included are so quick to just, you know, like you, you do something and you're like, well, fuck that. I can't live with that choice and stop, you know, start it over. Um, but you know, you nudge a kick drum and post or something. Yeah. 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 But man, like, those those little moments just that's I mean that's what music by humans is is all about and and I think if if we give ourselves a little bit more of a chance to live with something uh, we might we might find that we can live with it and that maybe it's it's even preferable. Yeah, and I mean, I, I would say there are definitely warts in my part on colors, which has now been heard millions and millions of times. <laughs> um, I can live with those now. Right. Right. Totally fine with them now. Yeah. Talk about uh, playing the uh, the inauguration thing, because that just seems like a one of a kind shot out of a cannon gig. Um, how'd that, how'd that come about and what was that experience like? Uh, That, like I said, like during, uh, lockdown management, they got together every week with all their people and they said, okay, who, who can we talk to? What can we get? How can we, how can we get the band out there? Or, you know, they did this for all their bands, obviously, but, um, it's weird because my mom had suggested it to me. And I'm like, well, yeah, I get that. Whatever, mom. Um, but somebody in management must have known somebody on the inaugural committee or reached out or they had reached out to us. Um, I don't know. I, the song may have been on Kamala's radar. I mm. don't. I'm not 100% sure on that. Uh, but uh, so they somebody reached out to us and they said, yeah, we'll do it. And uh I presume uh, this is my imagined way it happened is like, cause we, we taped it here. Everybody was pre-taped. Uh, somebody probably called the mayor. I'm making this up by the way. This totally <laughs> didn't happen. Somebody calls the mayor and uh, the mayor says, give him the ACL set. So somebody like they, they had us in on the ACL set and, uh, we, we just played the one song and then, uh, it showed up the next week and that was pretty huge. And like, I, there's people like a lot of my friends on the social media. Like I didn't keep in touch with hardly anybody from high school. I was horrible about that. But like all of a sudden everybody shows back up and is like, Hey, I saw you on the inauguration. It's like, right. Oh, now, now you checked out something I did <laughs> 20, 26 years or whatever. Right. But, uh, right. It's kind of nuts. Um, I think technically the president is like my fifth cousin. <laughs> is that so right? Kind of yeah, like uh, 
he is descended from Finnegan's from uh, Scranton, and my mom's from one town away from that, also of Finnegan. So huh. it's kind of funny. No shit. Yeah. That's great. Played my fifth cousin's inauguration. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> somebody tell him I said hi. Right on. Yeah, yeah. He's he's going to come back around like, hey, I saw you. That's a great song. I saw your thing. Uh, he, he was supposed to call and say thank you, but I think he's been busy. Since yeah, then. he's had a thing or two going on um so i mean you like you you shot that on the austin city limit stage i mean like as as far as the the taping itself um was was there anything sort of like unusual or or crazy inauguration about it or did it just feel like kind of doing a regular you know video stage taping that was just another taping like i'd it was nuts to get back to work last week finally playing real shows but like uh, I think just taping live streams and things had kind of become part of our life yeah. for that year. Yeah. I I hope I hope we don't keep with that too big. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a. I mean, we and then they did it a couple different ways, like throughout the year. Um, it'd be like, okay, we've got to tape this one thing. Fallon wants something, so we got to do something for Fallon, and we'll. We'll just have you guys to the studio for the day and we'll bang out like four or five other things just if uh, if so we can pitch them to other networks and other shows. Yeah. So just they always had video on hand mm. for somebody else. So it was nice to get these little TV checks throughout the year for that. Right, right. And it was impossible to keep up with, too, to be like, wait, I was on I was on Good Morning America again. <laughs> I'm getting a check. Okay. Right. <laughs> very, very strange. I'm not complaining. It was just very right. odd. Or no, it's like, like one of those one of those high school buddies. It's like, hey, I saw you on Conan or whatever, and you're like, oh shit, I was I was on Conan. Okay. Oh, that so we never got to do Conan, and he's done with TV now. Oh right. So right. What a drag. Yeah. Everybody else's show though. Um. Yeah, and um. Where was I going with that? Just rec- uh, like doing a bunch of video spots, like kind of banking them. Yeah, it, it seems like we would do that every other month throughout the whole thing. And I mean, even uh, like Tiny Desk was like that. Um, mm. For a minute, I didn't. They initially said they were going to do Tiny Desk like with with no bass and drums, and I was like, "Wait a minute, y'all, that's kind of." I self-advocated, and I got us both back on it. I was like, "Cool." I, they they wanted to do it scaled back, and I was like, "Guys, come on!" Yeah. <laughs> and they said, "Okay, get over here. Bring bring a jazz kit for it." So I get I get over there with like my 18 inch bass drum. It's the wrong brand. Whatever. <laughs> um, you know what's so weird about about like <laughs> non drummers who tell you to bring a jazz kit, like. I I don't think they realize how little space they're actually saving. Like unless yeah. unless you're paring down from like a seven piece Weckl kit to a two piece you know Questlove thing. Like your stool's in the same place, the kick is in the same place. Maybe it's two or four inches smaller than your other kick. But uh, yeah. I just you know it's it's one of my little pet peeves about about that whole thing it's like you're we're saving inches here we're not saving feet yeah and i'd have to go back and listen to it it's like 
that that's literally the only time I took my 18 out in like over a year. I mean, I used to back up lots of jazz singers and pick up Western swing gigs and things, and I always just brought the little kit. Um, so it was weird to bring that, and that was the only time. But I get there, like, I got my jazz kit. Everybody else has their full rig. And, like, dude, they had a Hammond out for the keyboard players. Like, oh, <laughs> we're scaling back, huh? Okay, cool. <laughs> but, um, I, don't, I thought it came out sounding really dope. So Yeah, yeah. Um, was not going to be excluded from that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we, we probably taped four other things that day too. So wow, man. Um, so before we uh, before we started recording, uh, I just want to go into Mike Dork Land for a second because before we started recording, you mentioned that you're you're using an Omni mic, um, kind of like between the two toms. Um, yeah. And I I started messing around with an Omni mic recently too, and I, I think it's um, it's a kind of mic and a kind of recording technique that that maybe gets overlooked, especially when people are just starting out uh, recording. Um, you know, I'm on I'm on Reddit and I see all these drummers saying like, "Is this eight piece mic pack good?" Um, and I think uh, you know just the, the, the option of one or two or three good mics, uh, gets, gets overlooked a lot. Um, and the Omni gets overlooked as, as one of them a lot. So, so talk about how you're using that Omni mic. Um, so I, if you go, I'm probably still in this video. I did like a little video interview with some dudes on the Aston site. I had a friend who used to work for them and he was in charge of this, social campaign they did just interviewing different people who were using their stuff so my payment was like most of the product line at the time so mm. this would be the spirit and you can see you got the three options you could do omni or you could do i can't even remember the names of these things but <laughs> it's got these dope switches and i really these I mean, they're not the best in the for the money. Like, if you don't have any outboard gear, like this seems to have a lot of good features built in mm -hmm. to where it sounds like you have some outboard gear. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I have such a minimal, ancient, cheap setup at home right now. I mean, I'm always trying to update one thing at a time. But like, I'll just put it like literally, probably above the bass drum beater hoop ish yeah like between the two toms so it'll pick up the two toms but it'll also pick up a little bit of everything else and i mean a lot of times like just straight omni mics i will find to be kind of too noisy mm -hmm. but this one sounds pretty clean and warm and um i don't know i have this old old precinus box and it's got pretty good mic pre's in it that are all still working correctly but uh I think that that gets you a good overall sound, and then I'll do like a. Actually, what is their other mic? They have a short, stubby one called the Origin. I'll use that as like a kick out mm -hmm. a lot, just like right in front of the head, and maybe not even do a kick in. And they also have a these Starlight overhead mics mm -hmm. with laser point laser pointers built in. <laughs> That's cool. 
Um, it, that is it's cool, cool for I mean, if you're always trying to met, get right to the center of the snare or whatever, it's cool. And I find those are like, I, I just don't have to do a lot of fixing in EQ later. Right. If I'm using those, I find like, cause I had some, uh, I feel dumb for having sold them, but I had a pair of those, uh, Octava, that Russian brand Octava. It's like MK 012, but they were like a modded version of them. Huh. If you Google it, it'll come up. He's, he's not making them anymore. That's why I feel dumb for selling them. But, <laughs> um, and then like, I have had clients in the past year who wanted very modern rock close mic Tom sounds, but I'm not like, if I, if I start throwing up all these Toms and close micing them, then I'll think I have to play them. <laughs> Starts right. sounding like me faking a tribal tech record or oh, something. <laughs> um, well, it's like getting the jazz chart in front of you. Like you see all this shit and you think you got to play it all. Right, um, right. And I mean, I for like the first year plus of touring with Pumas, I was just like, okay, I'm I'm gonna do a slightly oversized soul setup, just a four piece kit, uh, like fifteen inch old A hats and a 20 inch crash and a 22 inch ride. And I'm like, I'm going to get every, I'm just going to explore the crap out of this. And I'm going to get all the sounds I can out of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, like for every micrometer, I raise my foot on the hi hat. I'm going to like really pay attention. And I became a, like knowing my boss didn't like a lot of fills. I became a big fan of, quiet cymbal crashes mm. <laughs> like just to fill up this little bit of space right like, right like enough for me to feel it and it, i mean it sort of started because our tambourine player wasn't there i was like i'm i'm lacking metal in these four bars or whatever like mm -hmm. i need to hear something but uh having like a good uh versatile 20 inch crash on the left side is really good for that for me but just that was what like the first year was about or so just exploring this super basic instrument um and then i mean then later i added a, another snare and another cymbal but that's it right so right and lord knows by the next album i'm gonna have to start playing samples or something we'll see <laughs> Well, it's cool what you said about like exploring a basic instrument, and um, you know, I think uh, we can we can do the same thing with our our mic setup, whatever it is. Just exploring like a simple way to capture the whole kit sound um, yeah. before you before you start throwing mics on every single thing. Um, right. And like something I've gotten hip to recently through talking to people like Dan Bailey and Jordan Rose. Um, is that like close mics, I, I didn't really realize this before, but like close mic drums don't sound like drums. Um, and I thought like before I got into recording, I thought that, you know, the close mics were your primary voices uh, that you're capturing. And then, you know, the overheads and the room mic and all that shit was sort of supplemental to, to fill it in. But a lot of guys uh, and ladies are, are 
taken the opposite approach where like, you know, most of the sound you're hearing is kind of the complete picture sound from the overheads or that placement you were talking about or the rooms or some combination thereof. Um, and if they need something else, then they'll, they'll kind of feather in some, some close mics. Yeah. And even this, um, this Aston spirit, I just, a couple of days ago, I have my kids Gretsch kit behind me set up, but I like, <laughs> I put this, I think it was, yeah, it was in Omni. I put it basically below the ride symbol, just mm-hmm. randomly. And it sounds like a room mic, like an overhead, like just sitting there on the ground. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, oh, so like the mic was just on the ground under the ride symbol? No, about, it's like two feet up. And then the ride symbol is about three and a half, four feet up. So for some reason it just sounded like a high overhead to me where, where it was. And it wasn't, it wasn't just picking up the ride symbol. Like it was picking up a lot of everything. It sounded like something much different than it was, but that's funny. I, I think I heard one of your other uh, interviews with a guy talking about how close mic drums don't sound like drums. And um, there was a hard proof record, uh, it's called Stinger. We did most of it with a guy named Frenchie Smith. His name's Chris John Smith, and he's from Oklahoma, but he goes by the name Frenchie. <laughs> um, he's got a dope studio here in town, and um, he had just gotten these uh, even-tied compressors back. So, like, I have the most absurd art rock 80s, almost Genesis drums on this one track. <laughs> and... Um, Everything is just like I um I had just gotten this it's like a black chrome slingerland with concert toms kit. It's just Whoa. I didn't know a twenty-two. I picked up a, <laughs> a cheap kit with a twenty-two, but it's like I I found out some cool things in that because like concert toms, well, I don't definitely don't use them regularly. Like they can if you put like a four twenty-one inside it, it like self-baffles. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. But then and then I had a very dry piccolo, like probably with a big fat snare drum on it, plus a bandana, maybe. I don't know. It was stupid dry. But he just took these and ran them both all through the eventide afterwards, trying to get like a David Bowie record kind of sound. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was nutty good, but they don't sound like drums at all. That's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, I think it was uh, Brody Simpson who was talking about that. Um yeah, yeah, an interview about you. a month or two ago. Um, but yeah, so like those, those close mic sounds, they can, they can definitely be useful, you know, if you're going for a certain thing. Um, but I'm, like I said, I'm trying to switch my mentality of like starting with the big picture, start with the overhead, start with the room mic, um, yeah. and take it from there. Um, I mean, that's been the COVID thing for me in this, this is not a very special room sonically. It's just, it's drywall. I don't like the sound of drywall. I need to, I need to cover one wall in wood paneling or something just to change it up. Yeah. But I have like these panels work okay. Uh, it's just I had to quickly figure out how to get good sounds in an average room. Mm-hmm. So like that's that's been the big project of this whole thing. Luckily, it came together kind of okay. Um, <laughs> Like if I'm just recording things and sending them to somebody else to throw through all their, to work through all their processors and stuff, 
it sounds great. I mean, I'm getting better at mixing my own stuff, but um, getting good drum sounds in an average sounding room is usually a challenge. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and ironically, I, I think, you know, the close mics uh, really <laughs> come in handy for that. You know, close mics and soft playing will uh, hide a, a multitude of, of room sins. Oh, yeah. Man, I really appreciate you talking. It's great to see uh, Black Pumas back out there. Uh, I love the record. I love your stuff. Um, and uh, hope to see you out there IRL sometime soon. So you're in Atlanta? Yeah. Okay. I'll ho- I know we were there at least once before the end of the year, so I'll holler at you. That'd be great. Maybe me and you and Kevin could get coffee or something. Or, at, or you know, something alcoholic would be... <laughs> You can invade the green room. (laughs) Excellent. Look forward to it. All right, man. Thank you so much for having me. There you go. Stephen Bidwell. Good dude, funny dude, great drummer, and an example of someone who was embedded and invested in a scene for a long time, and that resulted in something really big and really cool finally happening for him. The Black Pumas are back out there. They have a lot of dates all over coming up, so see if you can go check them out. Next week, Matthew Krauss will be talking with drummer and percussionist Blake Fleming, whose resume includes the Mars Volta and many others, and has just published his first book called The Book of Rhythm. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, get vexed, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.